Thank you for tuning in to Timely and Timeless Truth Podcast with Danny Varghese. We hope and pray that you will be blessed by the hearing of the Word of God. Here's Danny Varghese with today's scripture meditation. Considering the seasons and the times that we are currently in, I felt it appropriate to share from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. But before I read it, I wanted to share a few introductory notes so that we can better understand where James is coming from and what he is trying to communicate. James is the brother of Jesus, and he was a leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was respected for giving advice and for the wise decisions he helped the community of believers to make. His book contains a discussion of practical things. The book of James contains writings and sayings that are similar to what is noted, similar to the wisdom that is noted in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. This book deals with questions of daily living. It gives us godly wisdom, which serves as a guide, a valuable guide to living a wholesome and God-centered lives. The primary theme in this book is living out one's faith, to be a doer and not just a hearer of the Word of God. This book challenges readers to seek divine and godly wisdom in working out and living out our lives. There were certain troubles that had entered the churches at that time, and as a result, certain divisions took place and factions were in place, and as a result... Some had fallen into a worldly lifestyle. Some had failed to put faith into practice, with the result of some becoming double-minded and shifting and wavering between God and the world. And all of this can be noted primarily in chapter 1 and chapter 4 of James. This particular book, James, has a total of 108 verses in which there are over 50 imperatives or 50 direct commands. The many commands that we see in this book, the abundance of commands that we see in this book should be a signal, a hint, that James the author is pretty serious about practical living and is highly interested in action than simply words and belief because it should be the actions that determine, that define the characteristics of a Christian, of a child of God. The intent of James is that his readers are moved to action. And so we as his readers today, his intent for us is that we are also moved to action. The portion for meditation is James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, which I will read for you here. It says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In the early part of chapter 4, I was particularly caught, my attention was particularly caught with a particular phrase 
that James uses against a group of people. He says, you adulterous people. He's referring to the people that he's writing to, directly, immediately writing to. He's saying, you adulterous people. This recalls the Old Testament prophets using similar language to address Israel, to issue an indictment against Israel when they were unfaithful to God. Such people, James says, they have made a choice. What is the choice that they have made? They have chosen friendship with the world, which means enmity with God or enemies of God. How have they chosen friendship with the world? Very simply put, by imitating worldly ways of living and worldly ways of thinking and worldly ways of engaging in certain activities. One of the ways in which they have done this is what we just read. James begins by saying, Come now, you who say. In more casual terms, he's saying, Come on, man. Those of you that are saying this, what are these people saying? What is this category of people saying? Or what is this individual maybe saying that James is trying to address? They speak in a manner that they know certain things. This particular statement that we just read, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there, trade and make a profit. That particular statement from this individual, whoever it is, or from this group of people, whoever they are, communicates to us that they know certain things, that they supposedly know certain things. Number one, the when of things, today or tomorrow. The where, that they will go to such and such a town. How long, that they will spend a year there. What will they be doing, that they will trade? And what will be the result or what will be the outcome, that they will make a profit? Sounds like a very good businessman, does it not? Sounds like a person who's well-organized, who's thinking ahead, who's planning out his future, who's looking ahead. We may have also made similar plans for the next week, next month, and maybe even for the year ahead. Think about the plans that you and I made at this particular time last year, for this year. And think about how those plans have panned out. How have they materialized? Have they materialized? Have they come to fruition? As individuals, as families, as communities, as a nation, and even as the world today, things did not go necessarily as planned. So here is James giving us an example of a person, more than likely a businessman in one of his churches, laying out the details of his planning for at least a year in advance. But in spite of all the details in this person's planning, James is saying that there is an element that is most important to any planning that this person has not considered or has no knowledge of. What is he saying? What is he referring to? See, James is saying this. It is good that you have made this elaborate plan for your life. 
But there is just a slight, a small problem. What is that? But yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know what tomorrow holds. You do not know if there will be a tomorrow. I believe James is actually very generous when he says that you do not know what tomorrow will bring when the reality, when the fact of the matter is, you and I do not know, even know what today, what the next hour, what the next minute will bring. So that James is essentially asking this question. He's implying this question. If you do not know what tomorrow or even today will bring, then what, if anything, do you really know? Let me say that again. If you do not know what tomorrow or even today will bring, then what, if anything, do you really know? If you do not know about tomorrow, then you certainly do not know for sure any part of what you have planned, any part of what you have just said. Because if there is no tomorrow, then none of those elements of your planning will work. If you do not know what tomorrow will bring, how is it that you will go to such and such a town? If you do not know what tomorrow will bring, how is it that you will spend a year at such, at such a town, trade and make a profit? See, the knowledge of tomorrow is kept hidden to you and to me. If the knowledge of tomorrow is kept hidden to you, then in reality you do not have control of tomorrow. What you do not know, you absolutely have no control of. What you do not have full knowledge of, you do not have full control of, is what James is saying. He then proceeds to ask this question. What is your life? A very simple question, a very short question, simple yet profound. A question I wonder if we have ever thought of. Do we ever think along these lines? Have we thought about this question? A very important question. Have we thought about the very nature of our life, the very nature of our breath, the very nature of our health? James not only asks the question, he gives us the answer to the question. What is his answer? His answer is this, for you are a mist that appears for a little time, for a little while, and then vanishes. I don't know about you, but that is not the answer that I wanted to hear. That is not the answer that I expected. That is not the answer that I would have said or even thought of. Because he likens my life he compares your life to what? To a mist, to a vapor, to smoke, to steam. Did you have hot coffee this morning? Did you notice the steam that came out of the cup, that came out of the coffee that you were drinking? Or have you noticed the cold air that you exhale on a cold winter morning? James says that this is the nature of your life. This is my life. At very quick glance, he informs us of the brevity 
of life. But I believe it is deeper than that. He's trying to teach us deeper lessons than that. What is James trying to teach us with these verses that we just covered? That only an omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent being can fully know and fully control what happens today or tomorrow. That only an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent being can fully know and consequently fully control what happens today or tomorrow. So his first point or his first lesson is this. For us to know that God is sovereign and that he is fully knowledgeable and fully in control of everything. That God is sovereign, that he is the only one who is fully knowledgeable and fully in control of everything. Let me take your attention to a passage that we are familiar with in Luke chapter 12. It is a portion that we have read before, but I want to touch on it again this morning from verses 13 on Luke chapter 12, verse 13 on. This is what it says. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods, laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What kind of a picture do you get of this man, of this rich man? What do you feel about him from what we have just read? Here he is faced with a challenge. He has plentiful of crops and he's wondering what to do with it. And he decides this, that he will turn, tear down his existing barns and build larger ones so that he can store all of his grain and all of his goods. Why? So that his soul can have ample goods laid up for many years to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, what did God say to him? How did God address him? God addresses him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. The Bible says, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And here, God refers to this rich man as the fool. Which essentially means this, that here is a man who lives without believing that God exists. Who lives as though God does not exist. Who lives as though there is no eternity. And so God addresses him as fool. Why? Because he's only worried about his self. He says, I will tear down my barns. I will build. I will say to my soul, I will do this and that for myself. And God says to him or says to us, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich man lays up treasure for himself and is not rich 
toward God. Let me take you to another passage in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is teaching about laying up treasures. And he talks about laying up treasures in heaven and on earth. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let me also read verse 25, because I believe that is a very interesting transition that Jesus makes from that particular account of laying up treasures in heaven to this verse in 25, which says, Therefore, meaning based on everything that I've just said, do not be anxious about your life. So here is Jesus teaching about laying up treasures, much like an investment advisor, investment broker, giving advice on where it is best to invest. And he says, it is best to invest your treasures, lay up your treasures in heaven, because that is where things will last, long-lasting treasures. Treasure is something that is sacred, something that is precious, something that is valuable. And if it is precious and valuable, our heart is very much connected to it. And that is why Jesus says, where your heart is or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the question here in connection with what, is, what James is saying is, where is your treasure? Where are you investing? What is your pursuit? What are you after? The second point from this particular passage in James, or the second lesson, is this, that we need to be rich toward God, toward the things of God, toward the things of heaven, toward, towards eternity. Certainly in this mist-like life that we have, it is important to be a good steward of the possessions that we have. But more importantly, it is necessary that we are good stewards of our souls, of our eternity, that which matters the most. This kind of a stewardship is wise planning, is what James is saying. He's saying being rich toward God is what is important. To the question, what is your life? James gives the answer, your life is a mist that is here for a little while and then vanishes. To the question, what is your life? Jesus also gives an answer. If you notice in Luke chapter 12, when the brother came to the teacher Jesus and said, can you be an arbitrator, a judge between me and my brother over the inheritance that needs to be shared between us? Jesus says to them, who am I to arbitrate between you and your brother in your situation? He says, guard against all covetousness. And then he says, your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So here is Jesus giving an answer to the question, what is your life? The answer is, your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And here is Jesus' brother also giving the answer to the question, what is your life? And that is, your life is a mist. 
is a vapor that is here today for a little while and then vanishes. If you noticed, I also read verse 25 from Matthew chapter 6 after the account of Jesus teaching about laying up treasures in heaven. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. He's saying that if you follow this advice from me, which, which is laying up treasures in heaven instead of laying up treasures on the earth, therefore, you do not have to be anxious about your life. That's interesting, is it not? There are many of us that are anxious, that are worried about what tomorrow will bring. But Jesus is saying, as long as you lay up treasures in heaven, have an eternal perspective in the things that we do and the, and the way that we plan, you will not have any reason to be anxious. You will not have any reason to worry. So the third lesson, third point that James, I believe, is trying to communicate to us is that the more... We are rich toward God. The more of God that we have means the less of the world that we have. Or put, in, put it in another way, the more of God, the more rich we are toward God, the less of the anxiety that we will have. It's a powerful statement. It's a powerful lesson that both Jesus and James is trying to communicate here, I believe. Let us go further down this passage. In verse 15, he says, Instead, you ought to say, which is con contrasted with verse 13, which says, You who say, there is a proper way to plan and a proper way to live as a child of God, is what James is saying. You ought to say, there is an oughtness. There is a way in which things ought to be done, ought to be planned as a child of God, as a Christian. And how is it? James says, if the Lord wills, if the Lord desires, if the Lord thinks it is best, if the Lord wants, then we will do this or that. Because you see, life itself is a gift from God and a privilege afforded to us by God. So when we say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord desires, if the Lord wants, if the Lord thinks it is best, then we will do this and that. When we say that, what are we essentially confessing? And that is the fourth lesson, the fourth point here. We're confessing that God knows what is best for us. God knows what is best for you. God knows what is best for me. That is the fourth lesson that he's trying to teach, that God knows what is best for you. Even in the midst of our best planning, even in the midst of our best planning, there is a plan that is much better, that is much superior than any of our planning. And that is God's planning. Furthermore, James says, the way it is, as it is, the way they have talked about it so far, the way that they have talked about their plan so far, James says that it is boasting in arrogance. All such boasting is evil or not good. It is not of God, it is of the devil. 
The words related to arrogance are mentioned over 200 times in the Bible. And each time that it is mentioned, it is an attitude that is detested and rejected by God. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5, it says this, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord and will not go unpunished. Of the seven things that God hates, the first on that list is haughty eyes and a proud look. You see, there are two Greek forms of the word arrogance. The first form means swelling up or extravagant. The second Greek form of the word means loftiness of pride or puffing up of the soul. Let me take you to a passage in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, which talks about the pride of life. Here, we read what it means to be prideful, to be lofty, to be swelling up. And this is what it says. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The pride of life is a particular term that I want to draw your attention to. The pride of life essentially says that this is my life. I will do what I please. But James calls this kind of an attitude evil. And you can be sure that God hates, God rejects this kind of an attitude. In this same chapter in James, we see that James saying, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you. In verses 6 through 8 of chapter 4. He is teaching us about humility. The word humility, someone said, has two roots. Number one, it means not God. It means to have an attitude or to have an understanding that you and I are not God. When we come out of a place of humility out of a posture of humility, we are confessing two things. Number one, that we are not God, that we are finite and we are limited. Number two, that we are not good, that we are sinners and in dire need of a Savior. So the fifth lesson, the fifth point that James is trying to teach us through this passage here is that humility is the path to exaltation, because on this path of humility, it is God who guides, it is God who leads, it is God who sustains, and it is God who exalts. Finally, in this passage that we read, what does James say? He says this, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Here, what is James trying to say? You may have heard of sins of commission and sins of omission. There are certain things that we do that we know are wrong, and that is a sin. But there are also certain right things that we ought to do, but we neglect to do or fail to do. And as a result of us failing or neglecting to do that, that also is a sin. And those are sins of omission is what James is referring to here. And so what is his point with this last statement? He's saying 
that there are certain things that we know are right to do, even though we have the knowledge of them, knowledge that it is the right thing to do, we don't do it. For example, suppose there is a person in need. There is a clear need in front of you, and you have the means to help that need. Yet, you don't help, even though it is the right thing to do, you don't give, you don't help, you're not charitable. And as a result of you failing or neglecting to do that which is right to do, you have sinned. Another example is forgiveness. Suppose a brother or sister comes to you and repents, genuinely repents and confesses of his or her sin or wrongdoing against you. And the right thing to do in that point, at that point, is to forgive, to offer forgiveness. Yet you do not offer forgiveness. That is a sin. Because you know what is right to do, yet you do not do it. You neglect to do it. You fail to do it. You fail to do the right thing. That is a sin of omission. And so James is saying, knowing what is the right thing to do in this particular context, in this particular portion, which is not to be prideful, not to be lofty, not to be swelling up or extravagant or selfish, but to be humble, but to be submissive, to submit before God with all of our lives and all of our plans. That is the right thing to do, James says. Yet, knowing that is the right thing to do, we still do it without God, then that is a sin. That is a sin of omission. So the sixth point, sixth lesson that James is trying to teach us is this. Do not neglect or fail to actually do the right thing that we know is the right thing to do. Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way, the time is always right to do the right thing. The time is always right to do the right thing. The opportunity is always in front of you. If it is the right thing to do, to do it. Finally, the last point, the last lesson that James is trying to teach us, I believe, is this, that the God that we serve is an all-sufficient God, and that I am not self-sufficient. That I find my contentment, that I find my fulfillment, that I find my joy, my purpose in Him alone. That He simply will satisfy me. You see, you and I will never understand or experience the all-sufficiency of God as long as we pull the strings, as long as we think we've got it all figured out. Those are some of the lessons. Those are some of the points that I believe James is trying to teach us through this particular passage in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Let me ask you, is James telling us not to plan? Does he say to not have an organized or disciplined life? Does he say that planning is sinful? Or is he saying to simply add the caveat if the Lord wills to everything that we say, is that all that he's saying? Absolutely not. In fact, I believe that he encourages us to plan all the more. To plan all the more. He gives us a better way. He gives us a better approach. He gives us a better way of planning, a better principle of planning. And what is that? 
The principle is this, if the Lord wills. The prior kind of planning was more of my will, was more of your will, the way I want it, the way you want it. But what a better, much better approach, better way of planning it becomes when we not just say if the Lord wills, but apply and practice if the Lord wills, because then our future plans are informed by greater and eternal realities. Not only that, our faith also becomes highly integrated in every area and aspect of our lives. I want to end this morning by reading from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It's a very crucial passage, and I think it is a good way to end this meditation this morning. And this is what it says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth, which is what Jesus essentially said also in Matthew chapter 6, which is what God said in Luke chapter 12 to the rich man, and which is what James is also teaching us as a general principle to set our minds on the things above, set our minds on Christ let me encourage you, let me encourage you as individuals, let me encourage you as families, let me encourage you as the church to set your minds on things above, to set your minds on things that are in heaven, set your minds on Christ. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Let the word of God be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Have a blessed day. May God bless you.